families are. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm just. <laughs> I know you're nervous. You're sitting with your family. I know you're nervous. What's gonna come out? Uh, families are complicated. Okay. Yeah, we can do that. Families are complicated. Families. Families are hard. Families are a joy. Families are exhausting. Families are a blessing. Nobody amened any of those. You, like, it was like, there was like a, a, like a tense kind of just, what is happening right now? Where are we going? Families are a picture of something greater. If you're here this morning and you have put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you, Jesus says, are his family. You are his family. This is a big deal. Reflecting on this concept, my friend John Owen, back in the 1600s, said, The believer is dearly loved by Christ as standing in the nearest relation to him. And those are familial terms. The, the believer is dearly loved by Christ. We are loved by our Savior, and we stand in close relationship to him as family. If you're a believer, Jesus says you are his family. But isn't that just what we crave, what John Owen was meditating on? Love and connection? I mean, ideally, in a family, that's what we receive. We receive love and connection. And then, of course, in a broken world, in families, we, we experience the lack of love and lack of connection. Owen says we have it, but we don't necessarily find it in our literal physical families. Instead, we find it in our spiritual family. We find it in Christ. Now, Owen is getting this from passages like Matthew chapter 12, and in this case, specifically from Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50 where Jesus teaches us that we are his family. But as he teaches us this important truth, he does so in order to help us understand that that means something for then how we live. The fact that our physical earthly families are just a picture and a hint of our greater spiritual family leads to transformation in our lives. It should and must lead to a change in how we live. And so we have this awkward moment where Jesus' mother and his brothers show up and Jesus takes this opportunity to teach his disciples about the nature of true discipleship and what it really means to be a part of his family. As you and I look at this passage, we can be thankful for the ways that God has used our literal families to bless us, but we also have to consider what else is there that I need to think about with regards to what is my true family, right? What has, what has Christ taught us in these verses? And how should my life reflect that truth? So let's take a look here in Matthew chapter 12, picking it up in verse 46. We remember in the context, Matthew has been describing various responses to Jesus, some positive, some less than positive, especially those uh, Galilean religious leaders. They accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And so there was a little kind of back and forth as Jesus called them evil for calling him evil. And so there's been this, this tug of war. And here in verses 46 to 50, uh, the, the subject turns to more of an internal conversation with the disciples. So 
Matthew shifts the focus away from the leaders and the conflict there, and he says, okay, let's just talk about the, the issue of true discipleship. So we pick it up in verse 46. There Matthew writes, While he was still speaking with the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. Now, if you pause in verse 46, there's a couple things we need to note here. First of all, this is all still generally in the same context. Jesus is teaching a large crowd, uh, or here Matthew uses that term crowds, right? Many people. We'll find out um, next week in verse 1 of chapter 13 that apparently this was indoors. It was in a house. And so um, it could have been in a a larger building because the term house could be used not just for a literal home. But nonetheless, so it's, it's an indoor situation. And because it's indoors, there are people who are inside, who are sitting at Jesus' feet, who are gathered in, standing room only, whatever it was, and they're listening to Jesus teach, and they're saying, okay, yes, let's go, right? They're, they're, they're responding positively to his teaching. Not all, but many were. And so in verse 46, Matthew says, while he was speaking with the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. Now, listen, we understand that in a crowded house, it's the obvious reality was they couldn't get in to, to speak to him. But I think there's probably something more with the terminology that Matthew uses here about his mother and his brothers being outside. There's almost a picture, like, like they were out, they weren't in, right? Why, why weren't they in there with him already? You know, Mark chapter 3, verse 21 tells us that Jesus' brothers especially, they were not okay with what he was doing. They didn't like how the religious leaders had condemned him, and they thought Jesus was embarrassing the family, bringing shame on the family. And so they, they had come, apparently in the same context, they had come to kind of rein him in a little bit and get him more in line with what the religious leaders expected. So in that sense, we can see that in many ways, his family was actually outside, not inside, at this moment. So there they are. They're waiting outside to speak to him, not on the inside. In verse 47, someone tells Jesus, right? Someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside waiting to speak to you. I think what Matthew hints at here in this description is that when we prioritize earthly concerns at the expense of heavenly concerns, we've missed the point. When we prioritize earthly concerns at the expense of heavenly concerns, we've missed the point. Matthew will speak positively about what true disciples look like. In just a moment, we're going to get there. But lurking in the background of this event and this scene is a struggle with the fear of man. Again, we know from the Gospel of Mark that that's what was driving Jesus' family. They were concerned about what others were saying about him, what others thought of them and thought of him. But don't miss it. When we are worried about what others think, we can easily, all too easily, compromise our faith. If our primary concern is what, do the, what does the, the crowd think, what does the, uh, the social elite think, what do those whom I care about most, what do they think of me, and not so much what does Jesus think, what has Jesus said, right? We really will be outside instead of inside. We're going to miss the point, and we're going we're to waste our lives chasing merely earthly concerns. It could be money. It could be, uh, you know, achievement in the sense of career achievement. It could be, you know, educational degrees. It could be possessions. 
Indeed, it could even be a large and prosperous and moderately attractive family, right? That's what we want. But when we prioritize those concerns and pursuits over prioritizing what God says matters, we're going to miss it. We miss the point. Now, don't hear me wrong. Families are a gift from God. I'm going to say that again, and hopefully it sounds convincing. Families are, families are a gift from God, even though families can be a source of pain and hurt. The danger here, though, is in valuing our physical families over and above God and his kingdom. So just, like, let's be really clear about it, right? So families are a blessing. Jesus will affirm you should honor your father and mother, okay? That this is a good thing. So families are a good thing. But, but, if we are valuing our family in such a way that we are no longer valuing God supremely, if we are valuing our family in such a way that it compromises our commitment to Christ, then we have mistaken, we have mistakenly ordered our priorities. We've mixed it up. We're not, we're not seeing things clearly. So how might we know if we're valuing our family more than God? Well, if we would sin for the sake of our family, right? We've got to get the family ahead, got to get the family ahead and if it means I've got to lie on my taxes to keep some of that money for my kids, then so be it, right? That kind of thinking. Um, if we neglect spiritual needs for the sake of physical pursuits for the family, if we have no concern for the spiritual health of the family, right? Those are maybe some warning signs that we're valuing our physical families over God and his kingdom. Again, we'll see in Matthew 15, Jesus will affirm, you've got to honor your father and mother, but as a function of valuing God, not in competition with valuing God. So here, it's just so bizarre. Here's Jesus teaching these disciples you know, in this house or in this building, and the people are gathered up, and his family is outside, and they're just outside. At this moment in time, they're outside looking in, and they're like, we've got to talk to him because we're concerned about what he's doing. We all want what's best, those of us who have children. We all want what's best for our kids. We spend so much time and energy pursuing that. But what's best for our kids is not necessarily that they have every experience they possibly could have. What's best for our kids is not that we give them a healthy inheritance and make sure they're financially sound and stable. What's best for our kids is not that they get into the right school or have the right career path. What's best for our kids is that we guide them to Jesus, our Savior, and model a life of worshiping Jesus for them. That's what's best for our family. That's what's best for any family and every family. So even just in these first two verses, you might ask this morning, am I in or am I out? Am I prioritizing Christ and his kingdom? Do I get it? Or have I mistakenly understood what life is all about? Jesus' kingdom has to trump the concern of even our families sometimes, and even his literal family, which leads him to teach a lesson. So this is really interesting. Watch what happens, right? So here the guy comes in, they interrupt Jesus. He's teaching. He says, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here. They're waiting outside to speak to you. You know, like, shouldn't you take a break or something? Like, you know, but Jesus doesn't take a break. Verse 48, he replied to the one who was speaking to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? 
Okay, pause. Uh, okay, that would have been an interesting moment to be there, just to see the look on this guy's face. Like this messenger guy, whose name was probably Steve, we don't know. So he comes in, right? And he's like, hey, you know, how do you interrupt Jesus? I don't know. Okay, but whatever. Your mother and your brother's outside, you know, and they're waiting to speak to you. And he looks at him, and it's just too good. He looks at him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Uh, I didn't see their social security cards, but I like, like, what is it, you know, like, what's, what do you do? And of course, it's a rhetorical question. Maybe the guy figured that out. But I don't know, he was just caught there for a moment. Like, I don't know what to say. Someone help me, right? What is Jesus doing? He's making a point. He wants him to think, he wants the whole room to think about, well, wait a minute. Well, his mother was Mary. His brothers, I mean, James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, those are his brothers named in Matthew chapter 13. Those are his brothers, right? I mean, what does he say? What do you mean, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Well, he doesn't leave us hanging in a dramatic moment. Watch verse 49. Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Okay, he rescues the guy, right? Who, who, who are, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? Jesus says, look, to the, to the room filled with followers, he says, here, here are my brothers. Here's my mother. Right? This is my family. This is my family. These people who are in, these people who are responding to me with faith, these people who value me and my kingdom, right? who see that to listen to me is to listen to the Father, right? these people, this, this group is my family. Here's my family. And while as he says that, he is not devaluing his physical family, he's making a point that the physical family is really just a picture of something greater, of a greater intimacy, of greater and actually an eternal lineage, right? That the spiritual family of God, Jesus' brothers and sisters and his mother, that, that that's the church, if you're a believer in Jesus, you are a part of his family. Jesus' disciples are his true family. It's shocking for us, perhaps, to hear Jesus make this point in this way. But as he does so, he wants everyone in that room to, to consider which family they really belong to. Again, are they in or are they out? Jesus' disciples are his true family. This is a matter of allegiance and identity. I mean, that's really what family boils down to. You, know, you're, you, you define yourself by virtue of your family in many ways. Your primary allegiance is often defined by your family. This is why these, uh, these DNA testing kits that you can do to like, find your family heritage, they're so popular and so dangerous, by the way, right? Because... You could find out you are related to a notorious criminal, okay? An infamous family line. Do you really want to know that, right? You're going to wear that T-shirt walking around all the time? Yeah, yeah, you know? Uh, that, yeah, no, I don't know that I want to know. But people, people, these tests are compelling because people, we want to know. 
Who am I related to in the years past? What generations before do I come from? And, and people want to know that information about the past because they believe that it adds meaning to their present. Oh, if, if I knew that my family came over on this boat in 1887 and my ancestors saw the Statue of Liberty, oh, well, then that kind of informs my you know, pursuit of life and I feel a little different about my present circumstances. See, family is all about identity. But Jesus says our primary allegiance and identity can't be to our physical family. It must be to him and his family, namely the church. Again, it's all about allegiance and identity. Our primary identity informs how we frame our life story. It's a lot about, you know, worldview. Because when we say, okay, I, I know my family, I know where I belong, that frames how we interpret what's going on in our lives, right? Jesus says, you need a new frame. Because your, your literal family, your physical family story, that's not the biggest story. That's not your primary identity. He says, once you trust in me, you get a new frame to understand your existence. You now connect your storyline to the bigger storyline of what I'm doing in creating my kingdom and building my family. We have these beautiful uh, images in scripture of being adopted as daughters and sons, being welcomed into the family of God, of being Jesus' brothers and sisters, of being sons and daughters of God. Those terms are meant to remind us and teach us that now we belong to something bigger. And again, not to, not to speak poorly of our families. Our families are a blessing, but they're not our primary identity. We have a bigger identity now. We are part of his family. So Jesus says we have a new story. Isn't this exactly what he does in the gospel? We've been singing about it. We thought about it in Hebrews chapter 2, but Jesus became flesh. He became human so that he could die in our place to stand as our representative, as our brother. But by his death and then resurrection, when we trust in him, what happens? We are adopted into and become part of the family of God. We are now truly and eternally his brothers and sisters. And so Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5 tells us that at the right time, Jesus was born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we could receive adoption as daughters and sons so that we could be adopted into the family of God. Your family is a blessing, but it's not your ultimate family. It's not your primary identity. If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Christ, then the fact is that while God certainly is your heavenly father in the sense that he is the father of all as the creator of the universe, there's another sense in which God is not your father. You are not in, you are most certainly out. And Jesus came to welcome you in. He came to adopt, he came to rescue, he came to redeem, he came to build his family. And when you repent of your sins and trust in Christ, you not only receive the blessing of forgiveness, which you most certainly do, the removal of guilt, the promise of eternal life, you are welcomed into his family. You are made a part of the family of God. Jesus' disciples are his true family. Which means we share these family traits. We now start to behave like one another and most significantly behave like our brother. Watch verse 50. 
Jesus kind of summarizes the, the takeaway here for the disciples in this room. And he says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, a couple things about this verse. Um, first of all, Jesus is further identifying now what, the, what his family is like, right? So this is what he's saying. Listen, whoever does the will of my Father, now we're talking about my family, okay? They've trusted in me by faith, and there's evidence of that in their lives. More on that in a second. But notice what he says. He says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You just have to understand here that Jesus is very uh, intentionally including men and women in this picture of who belongs to the family of God. First century Jewish culture, women were not highly valued, especially in terms of spiritual community, right? And so what Jesus does here is by saying, uh, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother, He's saying, listen, this is not just for the men. That would have been their assumption. Spiritual pursuits are for the men. And Jesus says, no, no, no. This is for everybody. This is for men and women. He says, I, have, I, I want brothers and sisters in this family in the kingdom of God. So it's, it's a radical right, uh, elevating of the view of spiritual value in women. And so we have to understand that and see that even in our own church family, we have to hold this exact line that God has gifted our church with men and women to minister and use their gifts in support of the gospel. That doesn't mean men and women share the same roles. They certainly have distinct roles, but it does mean they have equal value in the sight of God and equal benefit to the church. All that to say, when Jesus says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother, he says, let's talk about this for a second. Just because you say you have trusted me, just because you've been following me around, doesn't necessarily mean that you actually have believed doesn't mean you're actually in the family. How do you know who's in the family? Well, they look like the family. They act like the family. And so here Jesus actually alludes to some of his teaching previously in the Sermon on the Mount, where he talked about the difference between religious-looking and sounding people versus people who actually do the will of God. Right? Remember, he drew a couple of, of you know, contrasts confronting the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of the day where he said they like to give so that everybody would see what they gave. You know, we joked about how they were writing a check. Oh, to make sure you see how many zeros are in this check, you know, like that, and, you know, drop it in the box, right? And Jesus said, listen, when you give, just give. Like, don't make a big deal about it. He's confronting their, their hypocrisy and fake, uh, you know, lives of faith with the real deal. Do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Like, it, like, there's a difference here. And, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives many other examples the point here that Jesus makes is you can't claim to be in the family of God and then not live like it. He's not saying everybody does it perfectly, but he's saying if you belong to my family, if you indeed are my brother or sister, then you will live like my brother and my sister. You will follow me in discipleship, in learning and growing, right, in prioritizing Jesus and his teaching and obeying him as our Lord. Jesus' family it not only goes way beyond his literal family, but Jesus' family lives differently. Jesus' family lives differently, doing the will of the Father. How do we know what the will of the Father is? Well, the Son tells us. This is why the Word of God is so important. The Word of God is in its entirety. Because as Jesus and the apostles give us the Word of God, he instructs us through his teaching and the teaching of the apostles as to what does it look like for me to do the will of, their, of our Heavenly Father. 
And he clarifies and corrects and, and guides and instructs. He commands. Jesus' family lives differently. Now, we have to unpack this concept because there's so much here for us. It's a short verse with a lot of impact, right? At, at the bare minimum, we have to just acknowledge the order of events here, okay? So just to make sure we have the cookies on the bottom shelf, all right? Um, or the chips and salsa because, you know, we're a big game later. So, uh, so here's the deal, right? Um, mistakenly, some people think, oh, I changed my behavior, and that's how I get into the family, so if I will, I start to obey, I stop looking at pornography, I stop swearing, you know, clean up my act, right? You know, finally start treating my family right, make my bed every once in a while, you know, do the things I know I'm supposed to do. Right? I change my behavior, and then I go to Jesus, and I say, see, look, I clean myself up. And then Jesus says, oh, okay, you clean yourself up? Well, then welcome to my family. He sprinkles a little grace on there, and in we go. That is a faulty reading of Scripture. That's certainly not what he's teaching. He doesn't teach it here, doesn't teach it anywhere. Right? So we've got to get the order right. The order is the opposite. What happens is people hear the gospel and they respond in faith. They believe that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. And when they believe, they are immediately welcomed into the family of God. Congratulations, it's 100% grace. You are now adopted. You're in. But once you're in the family of God, you necessarily start to live differently. And so now we start to make changes in our lives and we start to prioritize different things and we make these adjustments. So the order is what I'm concerned with right now, right? It's not change your life and then get into the family. It's by faith you're welcomed into the family and now your life changes, okay? That is gospel. That's good news. It's by grace you are saved through faith, right? The other story, that's a work salvation model and it never actually works because we could never clean ourselves up enough to warrant adoption into his family. That's why it takes God's grace and his love. That's why when John Owen was thinking about it, he, he just settles on love. He says we are beloved by Christ. And we stand in this close relation to him. It's not about performance or earning your way in. It's about his love, right? So that's, that's, like, that's gospel 101, right? There we are. So that's the order, the order of events. But now we have to dive a little deeper and so what does it mean for us to actually do the will of my Father who's in heaven? Jesus' family lives differently. So initially here we're talking about changed behavior. Changed behavior in accordance with the will of God as taught in Christ. So we, we take God's word, and this is where the Holy Spirit equips us, right? We take God's word, and we, we look at God's word, and we let Jesus teach us how to listen to God's word, how to, how to handle his word. We hear his commands. We get his instruction for us as clarified by the apostles. And the spirit of God convicts us of where we're failing and then teaches us and leads us and shows us how we should obey. So the word of God combined with the spirit of God, they guide us in now living a different kind of life. Okay? It's never one without the other, by the way, just so we're all clear, right? You can't have the word of God and cut the spirit out and just say, well, I got the manual, I'll just follow it. That's like putting together Ikea furniture, it never ends well, right? Okay? You can't put that furniture together without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay, whatever. All right, bad example. But you, th this is right. We can't take the Word of God and gut the Spirit from the process and then say, okay, I, I can just do it on my own. No, no. Every time we read the Bible, we have to ask for God's help. Holy Spirit, help me to see what 
you have written here. Help me to be convicted of my sin. Lead me, teach me, right? So it's got to be. Now, sometimes people do the opposite, though, don't they? They come, they come to their Christian lives and they say, I don't need the word. I've got the spirit, right? And they just say, Holy Spirit, show me what to wear today, right? And they just stick their hand in the drawer and they just, Holy Spirit, tell me what to do. And, they, and they're kind of floating through life, spiritually kind of, uh, you know, just wandering. And they've, they've untethered themselves from the word of God. And both are faulty. Both are going to lead you into trouble. If we, if we try to read the word and we're not in dependence on the spirit, it's just going to end up being us us and our effort, right? It's just me working hard, right? That's not grace. But if we try to follow the Spirit in some mystical sense and we are untethered from the Word of God, we are definitely going to get in trouble because it's only by the Word of God that we can hear from the Holy Spirit. It's only through the Word of God that we can discern what is actually Spirit leadership and what's just, you know, I felt this way, right? We have to have the Word of God to lead us and guide us. So it, the first thing that we'll say about Jesus' family living differently is that it involves changed behavior, changed behavior in accordance with the Word of God, yielding to the Spirit of God. Word of God and Spirit of God. It is different. It's different than our culture, for sure. Do we have to say that out loud today, right? That to be known as a follower of Jesus, to live as a follower of Jesus, means we will look different, act different, and sound different than our world. Not in meaningless, arbitrary ways, but in fundamentally significant ways, right? In affirming a moral standard of right and wrong. In insisting that God's word is not something we should apologize for or that we have to edit, right? But we follow the word of God. So Jesus' family lives differently, first with changed behavior, but then secondly with changed priorities. Changed priorities, this is where sometimes we can get a little messed up because, okay, we're impacted by what Jesus has taught here. It's not about my physical family. My primary identity is, is his family. And I, I, you know, I'm a part of his family by his grace. Absolutely. And so now uh, I'm going to quit my job and I'm just going to, I'm going to go to the mission field. Okay. And praise the Lord. If God is, if God is convicting you that that's what you need to do, let's prayerfully pursue that together. But what we mistakenly might think is that if I'm really going to be a part of God's family, if I'm going to be in and not out, then what I have to do is quit my job. Sometimes we think that spiritual priority, like that worshiping Christ, is somehow incompatible with going to work or going to school or being stuck in traffic or doing laundry, right? And so we just want to recognize here that Jesus' family lives differently, changed behavior and changed priorities. But those new priorities are not necessarily in conflict with your day-to-day -day life. You just have to think about it differently. Again, you've got a new frame. So maybe you're here, you're a student, you're going to school. Maybe you're here, you're going to work. Maybe you're here and you're a mom and you are slugging it out with laundry and cooking and, and grocery shopping and all that that entails and, and busting everybody to soccer and baseball, whatever else, right? So whatever it is, maybe you're retired, okay? And I don't know what you're doing. Okay, whatever. But, you know, it's so like, you got, whatever it is, whatever, whatever phase of life you're in, what we think is this. My primary identity is that I belong to the family of God. And so I'm going to school today. How can I function in school, live? How can I behave and speak in ways that honor my father? It's, you're not quitting school. You're not tapping out, Right? Say, no, I'm in school, but I'm going to be in school in a way that honors God. You're going to work. Okay? Your job very likely is not a, a spiritual pursuit in and of itself. 
Your job may be so mundane to you, and it may some days seem so meaningless, that spreadsheet, that meeting, that presentation, whatever it is, but you've got to know that you can go to your, to your place of employment, you can show up there, and you can do your job in a way that brings honor and glory to Jesus Christ. See, I belong to him. And so I'm going to go to work today, I'm going to do a good job. I'm going to be faithful, right? You're, you're a stay-at-home mom, and that, that laundry just doesn't stop right? And you're thinking, what am I even doing with my life? All I do is laundry. All I do is, laun is laundry and cook. But you can care for your family in those very practical ways, in a way that honors Jesus Christ. Maybe you're thinking about your attitude towards your money, or you know, your finances, and what you prioritize with your finances, what you value. Maybe you're thinking about how you spend your time, okay? And you just say, okay, how can I spend my money and my time in ways that honor the Lord? How can, how can I act as I am a true member of his family? Even the mundane, just being stuck in traffic, all those little things, having to, having to chop the firewood, having to mow the lawn, having to shovel the driveway as we will on Tuesday, right? I mean, we know it's coming. So, you know, there it is. And we just say, Lord, this is, this is mundane, and it's not necessarily directly related to the advancement of your kingdom, and yet I can do this in a way that brings you glory. Now, maybe, maybe God puts on your heart that you could change your career, and you could become a full-time missionary serving to advance his kingdom in a faraway place. And praise God, we need people to do that, but it's not for everybody. And so don't mistakenly think that uh, pastors or missionaries, vocational ministry you know, careers, that somehow those people have a greater sense of spirituality in their daily lives. There's nothing necessarily true about that. You can be just as spiritual, just as much a member of the family of God, and do something that's seemingly mundane and has nothing to do with his kingdom, and yet you can still honor God just as much as someone who does one of those other kinds of careers. Now, change behavior, change priorities... But when we think about that, we also have to add one third just consideration. That is, there are certain things that because we are members of the family of God, we say no to. There are certain things we have to say no to. This is saying no to temptation, right? Doing the will of my Father in heaven sometimes means saying no, right? No. I'm not going to be entertained by that. No, I'm not going to... Uh, participate in that, right? And there are clear lines that Jesus gives us in his word. And so when we're following his spirit, according to his word, we say no to those temptations, right? Again, not, as a, not in order to get into the family, but because we're already a part of the family. Now, at the end of the day, as we consider this passage, Jesus challenges us to think bigger than just our literal families, Again, Jesus' disciples are his true family. But as we've gone over all of this, you know, thinking about, you know, therefore we live differently, the changed behavior, changed priorities, saying no to temptation, all that, the fact is that we might be sitting here this morning feeling like, you know what? I'm not valuing his priority. I'm not valuing his kingdom. I'm struggling in this area or that area to really live for Christ. There are things that I'm saying yes to that I know I should be saying no to. And we're being convicted about that. So what if we're struggling to prioritize Jesus and his kingdom? Well, can I just 
draw your attention back to the fact that it's Jesus' mother and his brothers who are standing on the outside. Now, this is a moment, right? And I'll just admit that we're filling in some blanks here that may not necessarily be exactly like this, but just let me tell you these stories, okay? And let's just work with this. In this moment, Mary's outside with her sons. I don't know. Maybe it's one of the other sons, you know, that we don't know a lot about who's pushing back on Jesus and his ministry and the whole thing. He's like, we got to get, we got to rein him in. He's given, he's given our family a bad name, right? And so Mary just goes along for the ride, whatever. For the purpose of the narrative, she's outside. We know by the time of the crucifixion that Mary is very much on the inside because she is faithfully there with her son as the Lamb of God sacrifices himself for the sins of the world. We know in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, that after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is gathered with the disciples, kind of waiting for the next phase. And so she's there. Look, I mean, don't push it too much. She's in the room. Literally, Acts 1, 14, look it up. She's in the room, okay? Here she's outside with her sons. There she's inside, okay? There you go. James, the brother of Jesus, outside, right? He's outside. Maybe James agreed with the brothers. Jesus is a problem. They had a meeting. Have you heard about what Jesus is doing? He's a problem. We got to go down and talk to him. Okay, so here's James. When we, get, when we get to Acts 1, where do we find James? We find James with the disciples. Not just on the inside, but we get, by the time we get to Acts 15, James is leading the Jerusalem council, which is making decisions for the church at large. So not only is he on the inside, he's functioning as a leader in the days of, those, of the early church. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul talks about James in that leadership role, a position of significant authority over the disciples. So from Matthew chapter 12 to Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 15, the book of Galatians, James goes from standing outside to being very much inside, right? And I just give you those two examples as an encouragement to you, because maybe this morning, if you're honest and you're appraising your spiritual health in light of the Word of God, you would say, you know what, Pastor Ryan, today I'm outside. Maybe that doesn't, mean you're, you're, doesn't necessarily mean you're not a believer. It just means that you're not prioritizing Christ the way you should. You say, Pastor Ryan, I'm outside. And I would say to you, as a word of encouragement, maybe for a moment, so was Mary and so was James. We don't know the details about Jesus' other brothers, even maybe sisters, perhaps. But we do know that, at least in the case of Mary and James, they made it from the outside to the inside. How? By changing what they valued. You're not alone if you're struggling. But what you have to think is, how will I change my priorities to ensure that I'm on the inside? How will I make changes in my daily life to ensure that I am walking with, listening to, and worshiping my Savior? Mary and James would not stay outside. They chose to pursue discipleship wholeheartedly. So I think the question is left to you this morning. Are you going to be content to be on the outside? Are you going to insist, like any good New Jersey citizen would, right, in forcing your way in? Right? You're not, you're not, you're not going to be content to be on the outside. You're going to sharpen up those elbows, and you're going to say, where Jesus is going, I'm going with him. Where Jesus commands, I will follow. Why? Because 
He died so that I could be his brother or his sister. Jesus' disciples are his true family. Are you in or are you out? Would you pray with me and we'll ask him to help us respond to his word. Lord, we pause this morning in light of your word and we ask for your help. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask that you would guide us as we respond to this challenge, Lord. The challenge to, to view ourselves rightly as part of your family. Lord Jesus, we praise you for dying and rising from the dead so that by faith we can be adopted as daughters and sons. We thank you for making it possible by grace to be a part of your family. Lord, we thank you for the gift of our earthly families, but we also ask that you would help us not to idolatrize those families, to turn them into idols. Lord, we pray that you would help us to to rightly value our earthly families. But Lord, help us to frame our lives with your story, the larger story of your kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would help us to make adjustments to our behavior and our priorities, to say no to temptation, and as we do so, to do so because of your grace, because you have made a way for us to be called your daughters and your sons. Lord, I pray for those, especially this morning, who are convicted about being on the outside. They're not valuing you the way they should, and they know it. Lord, I pray as they are convicted that they would find comfort in the cross and know that we are forgiven because of your provision for us. And Lord, I pray that you would give them courage to make the changes that they need to make. Lord, help us never to be content to be outside. Lord, help us, enable us, and lead us to the inside where we follow you, listening to your spirit as he teaches us using your word. We ask these things in desperate need and in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and our brother. Amen.